modern economy needs a financial system, not only to process payments, but also to transform savings in one part of the economy into productive investment in another part of the economy. However, the Obama administration had decided, like the George W. Bush and Bill Clinton administrations before it, that it needed this financial system, a system dominated by the 13 bankers who came to the White House in March. Their banks used huge balance sheets to place bets in brand new financial markets, stirring together complex derivatives with exotic mortgages in a toxic brew that ultimately poisoned the global economy. In the process, they grew so large that their potential failure threatened the stability of the entire system, giving them a unique degree of leverage over the government. Despite the central role of these banks in causing the financial crisis and the recession, Barack Obama and his advisors decided that these were the banks the country's economic prosperity depended on. And so they dug in to defend Wall Street against the popular anger that was sweeping the country, the pitchforks that Obama referred to in the March 27th meeting. To his credit, Obama was trying to take advantage of the Wall Street crisis to wring concessions from the bankers. Notably, he wanted them to scale back the bonuses that enraged the public, and to support his administration's plan to overhaul regulation of the financial system. But as the spring and summer wore on, it became increasingly clear that he had failed to win their cooperation. As the megabanks, led by J.P. Morgan Chase and Goldman Sachs, reported record or near-record profits and matching bonus pools, the industry rolled out its heavy artillery to fight the relatively moderate reforms proposed by the administration— taking particular aim at the measures intended to protect unwary consumers from being blown up by expensive and risky mortgages, credit cards, and bank accounts. In September, when Obama gave a major speech at Federal Hall in New York, asking Wall Street to support significant reforms, not a single CEO of a major bank bothered to show up. If Wall Street was going to change, Obama would have to use political force. Why did this happen? Why did even the near collapse of the financial system and its desperate rescue by two reluctant administrations fail to give the government any real leverage over the major banks? By March 2009, the Wall Street banks were not just any interest group. Over the past 30 years, they had become one of the wealthiest industries in the history of the American economy and one of the most powerful political forces in Washington. Financial sector money poured into the campaign war chests of congressional representatives. Investment bankers and their allies assumed top positions in the White House and the Treasury Department. Most important, as banking became more complicated, more prestigious, and more lucrative, the ideology of Wall Street, that unfettered innovation and unregulated financial markets were good for America and the world, became the consensus position in Washington on both sides of the political aisle. Campaign contributions and the revolving door between the private sector and government service gave Wall Street banks influence in Washington, but their ultimate victory lay in shifting the conventional wisdom in their favor, to the point where their lobbyists' talking points seemed self-evident to congressmen and administration officials. Of course, when cracks appeared in the consensus— such as in the aftermath of the financial crisis, the banks could still roll out their conventional weaponry, campaign money and lobbyists. But because of their ideological power, many of their battles were won in advance. 
The political influence of Wall Street helped create the laissez-faire environment, in which the big banks became bigger and riskier. Until by 2008, the threat of their failure could hold the rest of the economy hostage. That political influence also meant that when the government did rescue the financial system, it did so on terms that were favorable to the banks. What we're all in this together really meant was that the major banks were already entrenched at the heart of the political system, and the government had decided it needed the banks at least as much as the banks needed the government. So long as the political establishment remained captive to the idea that America needs big, sophisticated, risk-seeking, highly profitable banks, they had the upper hand in any negotiation. Politicians may come and go, but Goldman Sachs remains. The Wall Street banks are the new American oligarchy, a group that gains political power because of its economic power, and then uses that political power for its own benefit.